So as moms, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, the place for people who love British military history and a damn good story. Today is the seventh of my episodes focusing on the Indian Mutiny that began in 1857. It's a fascinating conflict, one of the ones I find most interesting to read about and to research, and I hope you do too. Brave men from both sides fought one another in a desperate struggle that deserves to be remembered. Today we're looking at one of the most famous exploits of that war, the relief of Lucknow. We're picking up where my previous episode on the siege of Lucknow ended, and we're looking at Sir Colin Campbell and his relief force. And as an aside, stay tuned because you will hear all about how the most ever Victoria Crosses were awarded for a single day's fighting. You don't want to miss that. Please do like, subscribe, leave a comment. And also, I would really appreciate it if you would join my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com newsletter. When you do that, you will get a free ebook all about the Battle of Isandwana. All right, guys, without further ado, let's crack on with today's story. It's the night of the 9th of November, 1857. A tall, fair-skinned Irishman prepares for a crazy, dangerous journey through enemy lines. Thomas Henry Cavanagh is a civilian with the Bengal Civil Service. He's dressing up as a badmash, a native swashbuckler, the type of man common in the ranks of the Indian rebels. His face and hands are dyed as he tries to stay relaxed. He wrote at the time, Considering where I was going to, there was extraordinary hilarity in the whole proceeding, which was most beneficial to my nerves. My turban was readjusted, my clothes subjected to a close inspection, and my waistband adorned by a loaded double-barreled pistol, which was intended for myself, should there be no possibility of escaping death at the hands of the mutineers. His mission, alongside local guide Kunaji Lal, is to sneak through sepoy lines and reach Sir Colin Campbell and his relief force, desperately trying to fight its way through to the besieged British defenders in the Lucknow Residency. Can he do it, or will he be captured and inevitably killed? Hi guys and welcome back to the show. In today's episode we're going back to the Lucknow Residency, scene of such heavy fighting in 1857. In my recent video, we explored the grounds of the residency, the death of Henry Lawrence, the brave deeds of the 32nd Regiment of Foot, and the first relief attempt by Generals Havelock and Outram. After the fall of Delhi in September, the British had been ready now to start reconquering the rest of northern India that had been lost to the mutineers. Lucknow was in their sights. It was bound to be hard going. The mutineers were well trained, trained by the British themselves, of course. They were tough, they were battle-hardened, and they outnumbered the British Redcoats. Could this small British army really achieve the impossible? A new British commander-in-chief had now taken over, Sir Colin Campbell. Let's find out a bit more. From friend of the show, historian Josh Proven. By the time he took command in India, Sir Colin Campbell was an experienced officer who had a reputation for good judgment and iron will. He had commanded the Highland Brigade in the Crimean War, he, uh, with which he had stormed the heights of Alma and won fame in doing so, and immortalised himself and his men uh, during the Battle of Balaclava, when he had faced down the charging Russian cavalry with one battalion of Highlanders and uh, a few supporting units, all without forming a square. He's in line. A thin red line, as the uh, 
as the uh, as the news report went. Shortly after the outbreak of the mutiny, Lord Palmerston offered him uh, the role of Supreme Commander of the troops in India, and although only holding the rank of Major General, when he accepted this, he was given the local rank of Full General. So he was absolutely seen as the sort of general, the sort of man that the public could get behind and who could be relied upon to to rectify the situation and possibly uh, e and possibly end the war. Campbell's relief force consisted mainly of experienced soldiers, many of whom had already fought the mutineers at Delhi. There were the 8th and 23rd regiments, a wing of the 53rd and 82nd, as well as the 75th and 93rd regiments. Of course, there were also those hardy Sikh warriors, the 2nd and 4th Punjab infantry. For cavalry, he had the 9th Lancers and detachments of the 1st, 2nd and 5th cavalry, as well as Hodson's horse. There was also 16 guns, some sappers and a naval brigade of around 250 men. In total, the force numbered around 5,000. But what about their enemy? How strong were the mutineers they were about to face? The rebel forces opposing Campbell were very numerous, but I'm not certain if an, if an exact number is known. Various estimates exist, um, but the British were certainly under the impression that they numbered somewhere around 40 to 50,000 men. But there was a very serious problem faced by Campbell and his troops. What was the best route through to the residency? The previous relief attempts by Outram and Havelock, yes, they had reached the residency, but they had suffered such heavy casualties, they weren't able to break back out and they were now still stuck there. Campbell didn't want that to happen to him. He needed to get in, he needed to bring everybody out. Well, this is where Thomas Henry Cavanna comes in because that's exactly the information he was carrying. The best route. But can he make it through? It's an incredibly dangerous journey. Just after leaving, him and Kunaji Lal swam across the river. And then, let's hear it in his words. We reached the Iron Bridge over the Gumpti, where we were stopped and called over by a native officer who sat in an upper-storied house and seemed to be in command of a cavalry picket. My guide advanced to the light and I stayed a little back in the shade. We said that we had come from Monday on, our old cantonment then in possession of the enemy, and that we were going into the city to our homes. We continued on along the left bank of the river to the stone bridge, about eight or nine hundred yards further along, passing unnoticed through a number of sepoys and matchlock men, some of whom were escorting persons of rank in palanquins preceded by torches. There was more light than I cared for, and I would have given much to have had perfect darkness throughout the city. By the way, if you want to read a highly fictionalised but very amusing account of this journey, do read Flashman in the Great Game by George MacDonald Fraser. It's a cracking book based on the real events. Anyway, let's get back to Kavanagh's own telling of the story. What happened next? Recrossing the Gumpty by the stone bridge, we glided by a sentry in the Chowk, or principal street of the city of Lucknow, which, to my great relief, was not illuminated so much as it used to be previous to, to the siege, nor was it so crowded. I shuffled and jostled against several armed men in the street without being spoken to, and only met one guard of seven sepoys who were amusing themselves with women of pleasure. Kunaji Lal made several attempts to leave the main street and wander through the dark and narrow turnings, but I resisted his wish to avoid the crowd, feeling that our safety lay in court in inquiry. <sighs> Seems a risky, risky strategy, doesn't it? 
What would you have done in that situation? Would you want to stay amongst the crowds and try and blend in or take the back routes? Anyway, you get the idea. It was a hellish journey through swamps and villages. There was a few scares and then finally they made it to the advanced British pickets. After some inevitable fun trying to explain exactly who he was, he was finally shown to the tent of Sir Colin Campbell. Here's another excerpt from Cavanagh's book. As I approached the door, an elderly gentleman with a stern face came out, and going up to him, I asked for Sir Colin Campbell. I am Sir Colin Campbell, was the sharp reply, and who are you? I pulled off my turban and opening the folds, took out a short note of introduction from Sir James Outram. This sir will explain who I am and from whence I came. It was impetuously read, his piercing eyes being raised to my face almost at every line. Is it true? He asked. I hope so, sir. You do not doubt the authenticity of the note? No, I do not, but it's surprising. How did you do it? I was tired and anxious to be left alone to my thoughts, and I begged of Sir Colin to excuse my telling the story then and to put me to bed. But this brave, crazy Irishman had completed his mission. He was there and he was now going to be able to help guide the relieving force to the residency. The army set out on the morning of the 12th of November. On November the 14th, they brushed aside the mutineers at the La Martiniere College, which I'm hoping to do an entire film on soon. And then on the 16th, a very heavy day of fighting awaited them. This garden I'm standing in now is the Secunderbarg. It's like a high walled garden, a beautiful garden with these parapets on each corner. It was a strong fortress during the siege of Lucknow. The building was a Palladian villa and was relatively easy to fortify because it had an exterior wall running around running around it, which was to some extent already fortified, whether for decoration or for actual defence. I'm not sure. Campbell's advance guard came under heavy fire, and it seemed unlikely that the assault could succeed. The men were in full view of the enemy. Before a shot had been fired, a staff officer remarked, if these fellows allow one of us to get out of this cul-de-sac alive, they deserve every one of them to be hanged. The nature of where the Sikandabag was situated made it difficult to approach in a regular manner. Uh, the British had to go through um, some narrow streets and over some other agricultural obstacles, uh, hauling their heavy cannons with them under tremendous fire. Once these cannons were in place, they blasted a hole in the wall, and that was how the breach was made. So looking at the photos, I think the breach was more or less about where I'm standing now. It was a small breach, and sadly I can't film it from the outside because it's in the grounds of a government office. But through the Highlanders' port, screaming, remember Cornpore, it was a bitter fight. Meanwhile, while the Highlanders fought for the small breach there, the 4th Punjab Infantry worked their way along the wall and stormed in through the main gateway through here. There was a hell of a fight right here on the end of the bayonet. And it was here that Subedar Mukharab Khan uh, jammed his arm in the opening of the gate, which for some reason was being closed, it not being locked to begin with, uh, and managed to keep it open long enough for the gates to be forced. A bitter struggle erupted in the aperture of the uh, in the aperture of the doorway, and uh, until the other party that had reached the garden wall had gone through the the small hole that had been uh, opened by the artillery, managed to get round behind the mutineers that were still trying to hold the passageway in and put them to flight 
or killed them there and that was uh, the entrance that was the the initial entrance what then happened was of course the british uh, began coming in through the gateway the sappers enlarged the original breach so that more men could get in that way eventually the secundabarg was completely overrun it was estimated that there were 2000 rebels inside none of them ever left fred roberts who later became a field marshal wrote they were all shot or bayoneted there they lay in a heap as high as my head, a heaving, surging mass of dead and dying, inextricably entangled. It was a sickening sight. The wretched, wounded men could not get clear of their dead comrades, however great their struggles. And those near the top of this ghastly pile of writhing humanity vented their rage and disappointment on every British officer who approached. So just on the edge of Secunderbug is this statue, and it's actually to a lady who was killed fighting alongside the rebel soldiers when the Sikandabug was stormed. On the side here, there's a slab that says it's to the unknown heroine. And from what I can work out, she was hiding in a tree or fighting from a tree when an officer asked somebody to shoot whoever was in that tree. Someone said, I see him, sir. He fired and down fell a body. The person he had shot was a woman, whereupon he burst into tears with regret, saying I would rather have died a thousand deaths than have harmed her. It's a really interesting story. After the fall of the Secunderbug, after that incredibly tough fight, that wasn't the end of the fighting for that day. They moved on to the next defended location. So just down the road from the Secunderbag is this place, the Shah Najaf Imambara. And it was also seen of some heavy fighting. It was another brutal battle. One survivor wrote in Blackwood's magazine, Sir Colin sat on his white horse exposed to the whole storm of shot looking intently on the Shah Najaf, which was wreathed in volumes of smoke from the burning buildings in its front, but sparkled all over with the bright flash of small arms. It was now apparent that the crisis of the battle had come. Our heavy artillery could not subdue the fire of the Shah Najaf. We could not even hold permanently our present advanced position under it, but retreat to us there was none. By that fatal lane, our force could never be withdrawn. Outram and Havelock and Inglis, with our women and children, were in the front, and England's honour was pledged to bring them out of the fiery furnace. What shot and shell could not do, the bayonets of the infantry must accomplish. Once more, it was the 93rd who got thrown into action. They suffered heavy casualties in a musket duel with an enemy who was safely ensconced behind high walls. But what happened next? Here's Josh again. A sergeant of the 93rd Highlanders named John Patton had been scouting around the perimeter of the mosque while the bombardment had been going on and failing to break through the thick stone walls of the building. Uh, he found a small crack or fissure in the, in, the, in the perimeter wall, which was just big enough to hold a man. Uh, he could just squeeze through it. And having found this out, he, he went back to Brigadier Adrian Hope and reported this. Hope then took 50 men of the 93rd and he led them... Uh, and the sergeant led them round to where he had found this this entry point, and they climbed through there and made for the gatehouse. And the mutineers and the rebels inside this position, finding that the British had penetrated it and were now working to get the gates open, lost heart and evacuated it before an uh, official full assault could could land on them. Once they were in possession of the building, the British raised a flag and a signal from the top of the mosque, attracting a lot of gunfire, uh, to a signal to the residents that uh, help was indeed still on the way. And so the toughest defensive bastions in the lead up to the residency had been captured. 
Campbell said himself in his dispatch after the day's fighting that the achievements of his soldiers were almost unexampled in the history of warfare. And that is backed up by the sheer number of Victoria crosses were won. That day, 24 were won, 23 of them in the fighting at Lucknow. I'm not going to stand here and list all of them, but it would be wrong not to mention a few. There was Charles Irwin, he was an Irishman in the 53rd. His citation says, For conspicuous bravery at the assault of the Secunderbarg at Lucknow on the 16th of November 1857. Although severely wounded through the right shoulder, he was one of the first men of the 53rd Regiment who entered the buildings under a very severe fire. He was elected by the private soldiers of the regiment. And that used to happen a lot in those days. If a unit did particularly well in an action, but it was hard for them to single out one man, the privates or the sergeants or the officers would get an opportunity to vote for who they felt most deserved to be awarded the VC. Also, the first ever black recipient of the Victoria Cross earned his award here. William Hall was a black Canadian in the Royal Navy who had also been in the US Navy. His VC was for his heroics serving a Naval Brigade 24-pounder under intense enemy fire outside the Shah Najaf. And there were many, many more brave, incredible men. But the fight was still not over. What happened next? Campbell relieved the residents the day after the Sikandarbag fell, having stormed a further two uh, positions after he had taken the Shah Najaf mosque. Once he had secured the position, he made plans to make his escape with the, with the garrison. And to do this, he had to fool the defenders of the Kaiserberg, which was the main rebel position, into thinking that he was going to attack it so that they wouldn't try and put more pressure on the residency and try and close it off again as had happened before. So he made very ostentatious preparations as if he was going to storm the Kaiserberg, and at the same time secured an exit route, uh, an extraction route, you might call it, uh, all the way from the residency to the Sikandabag. And during the night, he funneled the civilians from the residence out, and after they were out, he extricated his own troops out to this, uh, out to the Sikandabag area, where he then once more had full control of his surroundings. And therefore, this is what sort of makes it like a, a, a special ops, black ops operation on a, on a larger scale. It was a specific captive hostage rescue situation almost. And so Lucknow was finally abandoned. It had been besieged for 148 days. So Colin Campbell and his force now completely retired, the city was left for the mutineers, and it was only recaptured finally in March of the following year, 1858. But before we go, let's not forget our old friend Cavanna. What happened to him? Well, he was also awarded a Victoria Cross, one of just five civilians who have earned the award. His citation says, Mr. Cavanna, then serving under the orders of Lieutenant General Sir James Outram in Lucknow, volunteered on the dangerous duty of proceeding through the city to the camp of the Commander-in-Chief for the purpose of guiding the relieving force to the beleaguered garrison in the residency, a task which he performed with chivalrous gallantry and devotion. He was promoted and died in Gibraltar in 1882. And there you have it, guys. Still lots more fighting to go during the Indian Mutiny, but I think I'm going to compress it down to one, possibly two more episodes due to lack of interest. Personally, as I said at the beginning, I think it's fascinating and I think it deserves to be remembered. 
So please do share this, spread the word, let's keep the interest up and I'll do you some more episodes soon. All right, take care.